Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is part one of a two-part episode on government finance. In this part, I'm going to talk about budgets. In almost every state, there's, there are two basic steps to the budgeting process. You have the proposal and you have the approval. Uh, in most states, there's something called the OMB, Office of Management and Budget. It might get named something slightly different in Minnesota, for example. Like you, you call it the Minnesota Management and Budget Agency or something like that. It's the same thing. Um, that office is responsible for studying state spending, uh, writing up budget proposals, and just studying the general effects of tax and budget policy. Um, most OMBs are run by an appointee of the governor or actually under the direct authority with like, in, like a subset of the governor's office. So that means the chief executive then has a lot of influence over what comes out of these agencies in the first place. Uh, most states have an annual or maybe biennial governor's budget address. The governor actually goes to the legislature to a joint session in person and gives a speech laying out her budget proposal for the next um, either year or two years. Um, these these speeches tend to get a fair amount of statewide and local press coverage. Um, many media often make the mistake of portraying these as, oh, this is the budget for the state for the next year or two. Um, what tends to get lost in this process is actually the legislature that has to ultimately approve that budget. Um, as you learned in a previous unit, there's, in some states there's some limits, how much can they increase it or decrease it. But they, 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 in almost every state they can, at least to some extent, um, modify that budget, and almost all of them do it, and some of them do it in quite a radical way, before the state agencies can actually spend any money in the first place. When these executive agencies uh, study potential state budget and try to predict the effects of increased or decreased public spending on certain things, they're engaging in something that's called cost-benefit analysis. Now, the principle behind CBA is actually really simple. If I spend X number of dollars on this program, um, the community, the government, society, citizens will derive Y number of dollars in benefits. It sounds simple, right? Now, the trick is trying to calculate benefits to all those different sectors. For example, uh, if a block of homes is uh, raised, bulldozed, to pay for a new interstate highway, the individual homeowners might suffer a loss monetarily, but also emotionally as well. But then several business owners a few blocks away might experience an upsurge of business due to increased traffic, which that means increased sales tax revenue for the city. So therefore, some experience some individuals experience a gain, others a loss, and it's it's left up to the policymakers to decide which losses are they willing to accept in exchange for certain types of gains. Um, in many cases, this sort of thing really becomes an exercise in educating guessing if you think about it. Um, for example. Uh, there's, you'll, you'll see wide claims about the benefits. Every time somebody proposes a public sports stadium, folks come out and say, oh, yeah, there's a huge um, benefit. The, the, the cost benefit is, uh, is very much in favor of building public sports stadiums. Um, you know, the proponents always claim that if you spend X millions of dollars in payroll construction 
and why millions of dollars in permanent sales tax. That's all good. You know, you're going to have all this increased traffic and retail uh, activities. Therefore, it's worth it to build sports stadiums, right? Opponents will often point to very, and there are many historical examples where a new stadium only resulted in shifting of entertainment spending from one type of activity, um, or sometimes even one, you know, activity in one part of town, and then just shifted it to another activity or another part of town. And essentially, there was no either little or no net gain to the city, county, or state. Um, even though these competing studies are looking at the same projects, they often come to very different conclusions about what are the costs and what are the benefits. They're looking at numbers in very different ways. Um, the other thing that you have to think about when thinking about CBA is what's the relative value of certain types of gains and losses? Is an emotional cost, like the loss of a family home, something that be, can you even attach a monetary value to that in the first place? Uh, and if you do, how does that value compare to other economic costs or benefits? Should one type uh, be favored over another? Those are the sorts of policy questions elected officials need to make. You can't presume that the accountants and the fiscal analysts at the executive branch OMB or the legislative fiscal office are going to be able to make those types of judgment calls. Another concept to understand is the difference between operating budgets and capital budgets. Um, an operating budget is similar to your household budget. You have your monthly income, and then you also have expenses. Um, your income has to be greater or equal to your expenses. If not, eventually you're probably going to have to declare bankruptcy, right? Uh, now, a good amount of your operating budget probably goes to consumables, things like gas and food and clothing, utilities, and, and, and other goods that once they're used or purchased, they really can't be reused, at least not at the same original value. Uh, now, if you consider clothing, clothing a consumable good, that's true. I suppose you could always sell your clothes, but you're not going to get much for them, right? Part of your budget probably also goes to pay off your mortgage if you own your own house or your car loan or credit cards. Um, particularly the mortgage or the car loan are good examples of capital expenses. At least they would be in the context of a state budget. Um, you probably didn't have the cash necessary to buy those items outright, which is why you borrowed money in the first place, right? And then, but also those items have an actual value, which could be regained in the future. You can sell your car to someone else and use the proceeds to help pay off that loan, right? And, and you might even have some left over. Same thing with your house. That's what equity is, right? Uh, in every state but one, there was a requirement, either the state constitution says so, there's a law that says so, or the state Supreme Court has ruled this to be so. In every state but one, the operating budget must be balanced at the end of the fiscal year, whether that's a one-year or two-year cycle, that again varies state to state. But 49 out of 50 states say you have to balance the operating budget. In other words, states cannot spend more than they bring in revenue, at least when it comes to day-to-day -day expenses. The only debt that states um, can incur is for capital expenses. Building of roads, bridges, dams, water treatment plants, um, college dormitories, right? What, any other sort of physical space or improvement. Um, if you follow the news locally about state politics in Minnesota, you've probably heard of the bonding bill. What that basically is, is every, at least every two years, sometimes even every year, the state legislature passes this bill, which authorizes a certain amount of money to be borrowed by the state to build college buildings, road expansions, flood control, state parks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the state's going to gain a physical asset. They could theoretically sell it. I'm not sure who would buy a road, but I suppose you could theoretically sell it, right? It's okay to borrow for that. Although the payments 
kind of like your car payment or your mortgage payment now have to be figured as part of the regular operating budget, right? You've borrowed the money long term, you still have to figure it into your monthly or yearly operating budget, right? Now, there's one exception, and that's Vermont. That's the only one of the 50 states that can, like the federal government, in engage in deficit spending. I mentioned in a previous unit, um, many of our presidents, uh, in my lifetime at least, have been current or former state governors. A common theme that one hears from governors running for president is often something along the lines of, well, in my state, we never ran a deficit, so I'm the guy or gal who can fix the deficit problem in Washington, D.C. I used to scream at my television all the time when these candidates came on TV because I was like, well, of course you did, the idiot. You had to because the state constitution says you had to, right? Now, when Howard Dean, the former governor of Vermont, was running for president in 2004 and made that claim, I refrained from screaming at my TV because Howard Dean was actually the one candidate who could point to a balanced budget as a real accomplishment because Vermont didn't require that either in state law or the state constitution, but that's the exception. Another concept which comes into play when governors and executive agencies are putting together their budget proposals is the question, are they going to use an incremental or baseline approach or a zero-based approach? Um, the traditional method of government budgeting has been based upon an assumption that as costs go up from one budget cycle to the next, the amount of money needed to perform the same work goes up as well. Think about it in the context of your personal household budget. Let's say you spent $100 a week on food last year. Is it reasonable to assume that because the cost of food went up, let's say 5% the last year, you're going to need $105 a week to buy that same amount of food this next coming year? Okay, That's basically what incremental budgeting is in the governmental sector. It works under the same assumption. If the State Department of Transportation spent $100 million, let's say, the baseline from last year, and inflation is 4%, then the assumption is they're going to need $104 million this coming year to do exactly the same thing they did last year. Then add to that new programs that they might want to add or new things they want to build or you know, add things to, you know, to the list of projects and programs. That's the whole basic concept of finding behind incremental budgeting. Costs go up because inflation goes up. And governmental agencies tend to add additional programs and expenditures in each budgeting cycle. Zero-based budgeting starts from a very different set of assumptions. There's no reference. In zero-based budgeting, there's no reference to historical or previous spending. The expectation here is that each department has to justify in every budget cycle, in every budget year, every program that it wants to administer in the coming fiscal year. In other words, at least under the pure form of zero-based budgeting, each governmental agency starts with zero. They start with nothing. And then they have to explain to the OMB, to the governor, or to the legislature why they should have the authority to spend public dollars. Now, as you might imagine, agency and department heads don't particularly like this. They tend not to like this approach. It creates a lot of work for them to con continuously monitor and re-justify existing programs. No state government has ever actually fully implemented this, by the way. Now, there have been some modified versions of it that have existed in some various incarnations over the years. For example, in the 1970s, uh, Jimmy Carter, who was then the governor of Georgia, tried to implement a form of ZBB. ZBB is short for zero-based budgeting. Um, and then when he became president later that decade, in the federal government as well. Except this wasn't really pure ZZB. What it basically took the form was of a sunset process. Some programs, but not major spending areas, were tried as a pilot with a short time frame. Maybe, you know, you're authorized to do this for three years. 
and then they discon and then those programs were automatically discontinued unless the legislature or uh, the president's office took you know they basically said oh it didn't meet expectations so we're going to allow it to sunset if it did meet expectations oh well now we'll get authorization to extend it for you know, another couple of years or maybe permanently um the state of montana in the 80s and 90s tried a process where each agency was automatically given 80 percent of its previous year's budget so they started off the omb review process was okay you get 80 percent whatever you spent last year you're, you're guaranteed 80 percent anything above and beyond that you have to justify in north dakota in the early 90s um governor schaefer tried something somewhat similar basically what he did is he he asked each agency head and when he was getting ready to put together his governor's budget proposal to the legislature he went to each agency head and said give me three numbers uh, give me three proposals one would be 95 percent of what you spent last year the other one is 100 percent plus inflation and the third is the sky's the limit there's no there, there's there's no cap what what would you spend if you know if there was if if there was a bottle's put of money what would you spend it on but then what he basically did is when he put together the executive budget proposal to give to the legislature he and the omb could then identify these things are an absolute priority because okay if they're included in that 80 percent budget that presumes they're important and then which could you cut back and remember in the 90s there was a period there was a recession in north dakota there was a lot of there were lower tax collections so the state was facing a deficit and that's why they did it but it was basically they used a modified form of this saying okay give us give us your prior, give us a priority list that concludes the first half of our episode on governmental finance now proceed on to the uh, I recommend you proceed on to the next uh, second half of this episode, which is going to talk about revenue, aka everybody's favorite word, taxes. Talk to you soon. <laughs>